TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 1, Coral Renaissance, featuring Mara J. Hart. We celebrate coral reefs as the colorful rainforest of the ocean. How could we not just save and restore existing coral reefs, but allow them to spread? I'm Ingo Niemann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris, and today I'm talking to Mara J. Hart, marine biologist, storyteller, and director of discovery at the non-profit Future of Fish. She speaks from her home in Hawaii. My name is Dr. Mara Hart, and I am the director of discovery at the nonprofit Future of Fish, where I work to help fishers all around the world be able to earn a living and have coastal communities thrive while also leaving enough fish for the future. And I am also author of the book, Sex in the Sea, which talks about all of the weird and wonderful and wild ways marine life reproduces in the ocean and how we are far more intimately connected with those intimate acts than we realize. How did your interest in the ocean start? You know, it's funny, Ingo. I honestly cannot remember a time when I was not wanting to be in, on, or under the water. So I have no memory of not being in love with the ocean. And I was lucky enough as a kid to grow up um, on the East Coast, Long Island Sound, and spend many, many hours um, exploring the tide pools there. And I learned to scuba dive at age 12 uh, in the reefs off of the Florida Keys. And, you know, it's just been in my blood. So your parents already loved the ocean? Yeah, you know, my my dad especially, um, you know, he's taken me to the same tide pools that he used to explore as a kid up in Cape Cod. Uh, and my mom loves being by the sea. Um, she always says the sound of the waves are her version of meditation. So, yeah, we've, we've always loved being near the water. Um, I took that to the next level, I would say, in terms of <laughs> dedicating my life to it and, and really feeling um, a very visceral need for it. I don't know if, if it's possible to, to separate that, but is it more the water or the creatures in the water? Hmm. I, I would say it's both. And I can share that there was a moment when that first occurred to me because it, at first it was definitely the creatures. My first love in, in the ocean was sharks. I, I was obsessed with studying sharks, understanding sharks. I just thought they were beautiful and fascinating creatures. But when I was about maybe 13 or 14, um, I had the first time that 
I went out into the Gulf Stream. Um, and the Gulf Stream, for those who don't know, is this warm water current that runs up up the eastern seaboard of, of off the U.S. and then actually curves across over to Europe. It's what allows the Mediterranean climate there to, to be Mediterranean. And the bottom basically just drops off. So you move from sort of the, the coral shelf into this incredibly deep water, and it's the most piercing, perfect blue. And it was the first time that I ever sort of freed of in a space where there was no bottom, where there was no animal life that I could see. And it was the most calming, um, almost spiritual, almost ecstatic experience just to feel this weightlessness and be surrounded by this sense of nothingness, but it was also such pure beauty. And I've reflected often on that moment as as this one where I realized that, you know, nature can make the most complex, colorful, texture-filled beauty. And she can also create these spaces of what feels like nothingness that are equally powerfully beautiful. And so I think since then, I seek out both, both kinds of things are amazing and and fulfilling to me the being able to explore and see new new life see animals large and small but also just to to be in that water um you know about 60 feet down <laughs> mm-hmm. is is kind of my home and this nothingness do you still perceive it as such because when it comes to life there is not really nothing sure no of course no it's um It depends. There's times when I allow myself to feel feel that in, again, in almost like a meditative way where I'm trying to clear my head and I'm just focusing on the color and on the light shafts. Um, there are these, this beautiful thing, this effect that happens. If you have a sun up above, you know, kind of midday sun, pretty flat water, and then you're in these deep bottomless blue, the sunlight sort of refracts in a way where it channels back down and you almost get this star kind of pattern. Um, and, and so I focus a lot on that when I'm floating there to sort of quiet and ground. But at other times, I am thinking about the microscopic world that is, you know, all around me. This It's almost like a galaxy. So as a scientist, I've, I've had the, you know, wonderful experience and, and opportunity to look under high-powered microscopes at diatoms and different phytoplankton and see these incredible crystalline structure, these single-cell algae, um, these wonderful little copepods, all of these microscopic animals and plants that do fill that water column, right? And they are the, the base of the food chain that drives our whole planet. Um, they're the ones that produce half the oxygen we breathe. And so then there are moments when I, I do revel in sort of feeling like knowing that that's all around me, knowing that all that life, all that fundamental, foundational, life-giving uh, forces are there. And they're so small that I can't see them, but I know they're there. It took me a while to realize that many people actually feel uncomfortable in this mm. vastness of the sea. Mm-hmm. And do you understand that? I try to be um, compassionate, right? I try to be understanding, but it's foreign to me. So folks who say, oh, I'm, I'm not a water person, or I, you know, I, I can't get in, in the ocean, you know, I'm afraid of the ocean. Um, it's just not anything I've ever experienced. I deeply respect the ocean. I have had times when I've decided to get out of the water because I thought, you know, this is not my time to be in. Whether it's the way certain animals are behaving or the conditions of the sea, you know, she will always win. <laughs> And so I think that respect is important, but I've never feared her. I've never been afraid of the water. And it just, for me, it feels so good. But I do think there are many people who feel fundamentally afraid. And I think some of that can be overcome if we are able to create that access at an early age. Um, I think all children, and they've shown this in studies, that babies want water, right? We're born 
of a water environment. When we are in the womb, we are floating just like in the middle of the Gulf Stream. More and more, we're seeing that we are water people. Um, and so much of our physiology and so much of our past cultures and society are from the sea. Um, was it the, the aquatic monkey? Mm. How is it called? Um, that we have certain features that show that we... Oh, yes. I haven't, you know, followed this this line of study too much. But yes, even the fact that we're not as hairy as mammals is a sign that maybe we had more of a water environment. I think there's elements of the way our our lungs, it's not, you know, it's not the same as our, our mammal cousins who've returned to the sea full time, like the whales and dolphins. But elements of our body are more adapted for the ocean and a water environment and certainly a coastal environment than not. Um, you know, the salinity of our body is in the salt of our tears. It, it does reflect the same salinity that is ocean water. It's about 70%. You know, so there are these, these little connections there that remind us of that existence. And, you know, if you go all the way back, we're all, you know, I think folks forget that life evolved in the sea. Have you ever been really in danger in the sea? I would say probably. Um, there's definitely been a few times where I have not made smart decisions about um, going out when perhaps we should not have, you know, in, in rough conditions. But I've never felt threatened by an animal. I like to think that I'm listening and watching and and constantly saying that I'm a guest here and when it feels like I'm not being welcomed anymore or that I've overstayed my welcome, I get out. So I've never been, you know, afraid. I've never been threatened. Um, okay, I remember an episode like two years ago. We went together with TBA 21 Academy on an expedition to the Solomon Islands. And yes. uh, there were these crocodiles. And yes. <laughs> We thought we had it kind of under control. Huh? <laughs> See, it does, like, yeah, I mean, you're right. I do a lot of ocean swimming. And at that time, you know, I had um, the amazing Diva Aman. Dr. Diva Aman was, you know, with me. And, you know, so I, I had a support buddy. And yes, there were crocodiles around. One time, Diva and I didn't see one that turned up to have been right where we had been. And then with you... But remember, we turned around, right? We sort of got to that point. We said, okay, let's look at the environment. We've had this great swim so far. Do we need to keep going? Is it smart for us to keep going? Do we feel welcomed to keep going? And we both decided, no, no, this is probably not, this next part of the journey doesn't feel like it's the right step. To me, that's engaging in the ocean with respect, knowing that it's never up to me to always execute the plan I have in mind, but to be flexible and be responsive and, again, be listening to, to how, you know, the ocean is responding and the life within the ocean is responding and, and be as safe as I can and as respectful as I can. So, which means that you have an overall trust in the ocean. I hope the ocean is on my side. I ask for the ocean um, to be on my side because I, I want to serve her. I have sort of a, a mantra that I always say before and after I get in the water, which is, you know, the only way that I can think of to thank the sea for all that it provides me is to serve her, is to be a servant um, in, in the ways that I, I can and, and the ways that I know how. It's almost like she, the sea is the most fair judge in the sense that some of the most skilled, dedicated, incredible water people in the world have been taken by her at young ages, at old ages, um, through freak accidents. I'm, I'm very aware that at any moment that could be her decision. Um, I think what I'm comfortable with is that one, I feel like it is a calling, um, being in the water, And 
should my time end in the sea? I'd rather it be that than, I don't know, a car wreck because some kid was texting on their phone on some random highway somewhere going to do the groceries. <laughs> you know, at some point, I think we just have to choose what we trust, choose what we hope for whilst, you know, being safe and smart and as responsible as we can be. So I like to think that the ocean um, is okay with me, but I'm not under any false pretenses that I'm any different than any other being. And part of what is so amazing about the sea is that it's so wild and she's truly is the most powerful force out there um, and unpredictable in so many ways. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if I take off my scientist hat, let's be honest right now, the ocean has every right to be angry with every single human on this planet. <laughs> we have not treated her well. So, uh, yeah. You said that your first interest uh, were sharks. Mm -hmm. But later on, you, it shifted to coral reefs. Yep, that's right. As a kid, I, I just loved sharks. Um, you know, I had all these shark books and I would learn their names. And um, there's, you know, there's over 400 different species of sharks and rays and, and chimeras. And they're just fascinating animals from, you know, tiny little ones that you can hold in your hand to the whale shark, which is, you know, the biggest fish in the sea. When I went to grad school, though, there was sort of this, this shift that happened um, kind of around thinking of the bigger picture, thinking of what is it that is affecting sharks and harming sharks. I sort of had this internal shift of just wanting to protect sharks to realizing that, you know, sharks are part of this larger ecosystem. And I really wanted to protect oceans and understand how different animals in the different parts of the sea all fit together and then how humans were coming in and how our activities We're affecting that. We're part of that, right? I became really interested in, in more of that interconnectivity and in ecology. And so I had an opportunity to look at human impacts to coral reef ecosystems throughout the Caribbean, including on sharks. And so that's when I started to really um, focus my work on coral reefs. From a scientific perspective, it was helping me to really think about root cause think about the whole picture and think about systems rather than thinking about particular components. And that's really carried through all of my work, um, even in the fisheries work that I do now when we go into a, a, a fishing community. And again, we work in small-scale fisheries at Future of Fish. It's never about the fishing or the fishery. It's about the community. It's about the, the governance context. It's about the um, information and infrastructure flows. It's about the finance flows. It's really a systems approach. And that complexity is overwhelming, but to me, it's fascinating. And it's also the only way that we're actually going to be able to think about a future that we want to create that has, you know, equity and access and um, thriving ecosystems so, yeah, so I, I dove in and um, really, really worked with coral reefs for, for a long while, and they do have a special place in my heart. As an animal, corals are incredible, and as a um, sort of as an ecosystem engineer, they, they build these entire reef systems that, you know, are home to over a quarter of all fish in the sea. Um, and there's a, a wonderful, uh, amazing colleague of mine, Dr. Kristen Marhaver, and she talks about corals as being chemists, producing these, you know, remarkable molecules that we then use for our own medicines as artists, you know, creating these absolutely just mind-blowing colors and shapes and textures as engineers and security guards who, you know, build these fortresses, which help buffer wave action and create homes. Um, they also filter the water that we, we rely on. And as um, farmers, they produce food and food security for hundreds of millions of people. And then again, millions of species um, around the world. They don't just clean the water, but they actually prefer clean water, like empty water. 
Yeah. When you think about a coral, you have this tiny little polyp, often, you know, smaller than, you know, your thumbnail. And that's an animal. It's an individual animal. It has a mouth and a ring of tentacles, and it can capture food with the tentacles. And inside it, it also has a symbiont known as a zooxanthellae. It's a single-celled algae. So it's a marine plant. And it's those plants that actually give the coral the color. They live in the tissue, kind of in the skin of the coral. And those plants do what plants do. They turn sunlight into food. And they give the coral some of their their sugars, and the coral gives the algae some, some nutrients that it needs as well as protection. So it's this very harmonious relationship. Because of the plant, the zooxanthellae, they need that clear water so that they can get the sunlight, right? So in the warm waters that that are the preferred habitat for corals, warm, shallow seas, there's actually not a lot of nutrients. That's why the water is so clear there. And that's where corals are actually able to thrive and grow and create these underwater cities that then become these sort of oases and urban centers that then attract and provide food and habitat and nutrients for all these other millions of species. And that's why they're called ecosystem engineers. So they're building that whole set of structures because they create the habitat um, and they create the, the really tight recycling that goes on so that all of the precious nutrients that are created are kept within that system. Around which year did you start... Um exploring the Caribbean coral reefs? Our first field studies were around 2003 um, or 2002 into 2007. And there was a lot of awakening that happened in that time. You know, I did a lot of dives throughout, um, especially the Northwestern Caribbean, got to see some spectacular reefs. And unfortunately, most of the time I was diving on reefs that were ghosts of their former past. Um, so much of what we were documenting was this decline of corals that has now really swept the globe. We're losing these amazing ecosystems at a unprecedented rate. And at that time, you know, it was, folks were talking about coral decline, but it wasn't well known in the public arena. I think it's still not really well known <laughs> as well as it should be. I mean, if, if these kind of losses were happening to forests on land, it would be a global, you know, catastrophe and the alarm bells would be off and everybody would be off and running. There's hope. We can talk about the hope part, but it's pretty bleak in the sense of probably being the most threatened habitat on the planet at this time. I fully realized when we went to the Solomon Islands, hmm. um, We went there for the rather intact coral reefs and right. um, I experienced how overwhelmed you were about seeing these mm. corals, like three meters yeah. in diameter, more than 100 years old. And you saw one coral structure superseding another one uh -huh. and you, you started to cry. Yeah, you said... I did. I'm like, I'm like tearing up right now as you talk mm. about it. Yeah, it was. Um, and right, the Solomon Islands are a hard place to get to. The population density is relatively low. And the way that people have lived in the Solomon Islands for centuries has been relatively lower impact. Oh, that was, um, that was an incredible experience. And they're not 100 years old, Inga. Some of those coral heads were a thousand years old. I mean, we are talking animals. They have lived through the, you know, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution and, you know, airplanes and the internet, like all of it in one, one colony. So on a healthy reef, what you have are hundreds of species in many cases, dozens to hundreds, depending on, on where you are in the world. And in the Solomons, it's a very coral-rich environment. And, and they're competing for space. It's, it's the same as what we see in um, a healthy forest, right, where different tree species are competing. And so you wind up with this constant 
um, flux of this incredible diversity. And you see, yeah, you see where one coral is trying to grow and take over the space that another coral has and they their tentacles will fight and you'll get these boundaries, these sort of <laughs> frontiers where they're pushing. But then you also have plating corals. So they sort of have this base and then they grow outwards, almost like a giant mushroom cap. And they're sort of trying to capture that sunlight by blossoming out like a giant you know, umbrella. And then they get so big that they're like cracking under the, their, the weight of themselves. And it was so humbling for me because in one part, it made me incredibly hopeful, right? These corals still exist. And that's the thing. We have very few extinctions. So the potential for recovery, the potential to, to have reefs for the future is absolutely there. And it was a reminder of how much we've lost, how much we have taken for granted. And it really is a we. Corals have been around since, you know, for over 200 million years. You know, they, they predate the dinosaurs. They have lived through major global change and made it and adapted until now, until we have accelerated and compounded that rate of change so much that it has undermined all the the really robust and, and incredible strategies they have for resilience. So why, even though they are kind of closed ecosystems, they have their own like complexity, what makes them so fragile to human interference? Hmm. I should clarify, you know, there are deep water corals. They live um, in kind of a different habitat. They have a different ecosystem that they're a part of. So. Tropical reef building corals, the ones that we tend to think of when we hear the word coral reef, the ones that support all this life and are sort of these oases in the desert, they are in shallow waters that tends to be near shore waters. So they tend to be in places where people also are nearby. And the local impacts can come from a number of things. Um, it can be, you know, corals, again, need that clear water. And when you have oil runoff from roads, other types of pollutants, and sedimentation especially, um, it smothers the coral, it chokes them out. And the same thing with fertilizers, right? You know, in the U.S., the Mississippi carries fertilizers from the breadbasket of America down into the Gulf, and it just creates all sorts of, of problems for, for the marine life that lives there. Um, it chokes them out, creates algal blooms. Another big thing is overfishing. Corals, they grow slowly, relatively speaking, right? That's why when you see a coral that's, a, you know, several meters across, you know, 10, 12, 15 feet across, it, it could be a thousand years old. Some corals grow one centimeter a year. That means that seaweed, which also likes sunlight and shallow environments, can outcompete a coral. So if you put a seaweed down and you put a coral down, That seaweed is going to grow up faster and be able to sort of shade out and overgrow the corals. But on a healthy reef, corals can um, thrive because we have herbivores. We have sea urchins and parrotfish and surgeonfish and damselfish, all of these fish and um, other invertebrates that eat the algae. They graze it back. They're like lawnmowers. They keep that algae in check. As we have overfished our reefs, we have started to take out those herbivores. Algae also thrive in waters that are more polluted. They love those fertilizers. They'll soak that all up and it makes them grow faster. They also tend to be a little bit more hardy in terms of, of the changing temperature. And this is the last and probably the biggest impact that we've had on corals, um, certainly in, in recent times. But Climate change has three effects. The first is warming waters. Corals live in a very narrow band of temperature where they can thrive. Um, it's about 22, 23 degrees Celsius up to about 29. There are species that go you know, beyond that, but that's kind of the sweet spot. When they get too warm, their first reaction is to protect themselves by expelling They're algal symbionts. They get rid of that zooxanthellae. It's a stress response. That means that they're actually kicking out their food factories. 
And the reason why it's called bleaching is when those algae cells are no longer in the coral tissue, those yellows and pinks and browns and greens, it, it becomes clear. And what we're seeing is actually the white skeleton of the coral beneath it. Now, at first, that is not a um, fatal event. If the warming waters subside quickly, the corals can actually recolonize that, that symbiont, those algae, and start to grow again. But with climate change, what we're seeing is warmer waters happening more often and for longer. And so the corals are not pulling those algae back in and they eventually starve. Um, at the same time, climate change is also creating, in part because of these warmer waters, we get more vicious storms, right? When corals are hit with a hurricane, which again is a natural um, incidence that they're used to weathering over, over the centuries, but now they're in a weakened state, right? With overfishing, with pollution, you have more dead corals. Those dead colonies break apart more easily. And then those pieces of reef get sloshed and slammed around, breaking off more reef during these storm events, which are now happening more frequently with less healthy corals around afterwards to recover and regrow the reef. So you get all of these sort of negative feedback loops, right? You get stuck in these cycles where one problem is creating the next problem. The other thing then is that you have sea level rise. Uh, folks don't always think about it, but um, warmer water takes up more space. Um, this is not because ice caps are melting and flowing into the sea. This is literally because as the ocean warms, that the molecules of water move more quickly and it actually expands the size. Now, again, corals have been around for hundreds of millions of years. Sea level has risen and fallen in that time period and coral reefs have survived because they can grow, right? They're living structures. But corals are not just dealing with sea level rise. They're dealing with bleaching and overfishing and pollution and fertilizers and, and all the other stuff. And then there's chemistry change. That's another effect of climate change, and it's making it harder for corals to build their skeletons. So really, in every possible way, we are hitting corals over and over and over again and undermining their ability to, to recover and, and to um, especially um, make new generations, you know, like any species, including humans, when you are stressed and exhausted and overworked, <laughs> making babies isn't your priority, right? Well, the same thing happens with corals. If they're stressed and recovering, they're not making eggs and sperm. So then you don't have new corals coming into the picture who can replenish what's been lost. In your book, you describe it in an amazingly, this uh, uh, spawning... Yeah, sex mm. event that happens <laughs> only once a year. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so corals reproduce in two ways. The main way a coral grows, again, we talked about that single polyp. That's the size of your thumbnail, um, sometimes smaller. When a coral is making, sort of growing its colony, what we tend to see on the reefs are actually hundreds, if not thousands of these little polyps. And they're basically clones of one another. So the polyp will split, and make two polyps. Then those two polyps split, make four polyps, right? And it grows and grows and grows. It's like a big family compound. And they share resources, they share walls sometimes, and they share this skeletal base. And that colony then grows with all of these hundreds of individuals working together to build that larger structure. That's the asexual reproduction, right? The budding, the cloning. And that's really important in, in terms of the actual build of the reef. But the way that they reproduce sexually, which is important for genetic diversity and for spreading over larger distances, is by making sperm and eggs that are released into the water column. And because corals are stuck to the bottom, right? They're animals, but they can't move. They have to figure out a different way for sex to happen, right? You can't go and meet your, <laughs> meet your mate. And you don't want to reproduce with all your clones again, right? And so what they do, depending on the species, um, many of the large reef building corals are hermaphrodites. So within that colony, one polyp will create both eggs and sperm. And they bundle them together in these beautiful little pinkish orange 
um, fatty packs. You can see them with your eye, but sort of like the size of a, I don't know, a pencil tip. And they're bright orange pink in color. And what the corals do is they synchronize this, this mass orgy, basically, across the reef. It's this incredible um, an impeccable timing event. And so each species will spawn and release its sperm and eggs at a certain time after sunset. So the way this is coordinated is first, it's the summer, it's normally the warmer months, then they follow the moon cycle. So they can sense light. And so when there's full moon, it's the brightest night of the year. And then they'll coordinate, um, each species has its sort of set window. Sometimes it's three days after the full moon. Sometimes it's five days. It sort of depends. And then after they have their day triggered by the, the full moon, then it's sunset, which is the next light to signal, right? And so depending on the species, that then triggers this internal clock where on the night of the spawn, you know, so say it's three days after the full moon in August for, for uh, northern hemisphere reefs they then have this countdown. And for some species, it'll be 90 minutes after sunset, they'll start to release their sperm and eggs. And it's like being all of a sudden um, being caught in an underwater blizzard. But instead of white snowflakes falling down, it's these pink-orange bundles rising up like little tiny balloons everywhere. I mean, millions and millions and millions. And they all rise up to the surface, every species in sync with its fellow species members, all at the same time. I mean, within minutes. There's been experiments that we've been monitoring corals and the same coral colony year after year, you know, if it spawned at 7.42 in 2019, it'll spawn between 7.40 and 7.44 in 2020. I mean, it is really precise. And when the sperm and egg bundles get to the surface, they'll break apart and they'll open up and then they start to mix and it forms these massive slicks. You can see it, you know, at, at nighttime, if you shine a flashlight, you can see this oily, fatty mixture. And that's where the sperm and eggs from, from the different colonies will, will get together. But what's so miraculous is after this, say, all the boulder star corals go, then about 30 minutes later, you know, maybe the elkhorn corals go. And 40 minutes after that, maybe the staghorn corals then go, right? So it's this, this layered event where each species is spacing itself out so that it doesn't have its eggs and sperm mixed with the wrong species, right? Because that often will lead failed embryos that, that don't survive. And, you know, this is being orchestrated across hundreds of miles of reef, communicated through you know, chemical signaling through um, light signaling, temperature signaling, and it's it's remarkable. And it's this incredibly beautiful event where all of a year's energy and resources has been stored up for this one moment, you know, this one pop where all the parents say, now's the time, and they make that next generation. And you know, for, again, hundreds of millions of years, this has worked. It's worked really well. Um, and they are still doing it. And that's part of the hope piece. These spawns are still happening. They're a little bit um, fewer of them sometimes. But that ancient rhythm is so ingrained that the corals that are around and the corals that are able to produce those, those sperm and eggs are still, still doing it. And so, you know, I, I feel very committed and that's not even the right word, like just driven and determined that as long as these corals continue to march forward and they continue to do what they do, we can't give up. We can't stop being as creative and innovative and um, forward thinking as, as our own human ingenuity will allow. 
to figure out how we help get get through this and help these reefs um, be able to continue to thrive. And I think there's a, a selfish lens on that, you know, from a human perspective. Corals give us a lot. Coral reefs are really important to the healthy functioning of, again, millions, hundreds of millions of people on the planet. They are astoundingly beautiful. They have um, deep cultural importance, food security, all of that. But they are also absolutely fundamentally critical for so many other species, right? So what can we do besides behaving as if we would not exist, if not simply <laughs> stop existing? Yeah. You know, I think the first thing we can do is is let's learn from them, right? That the model that coral reefs provide us with is is actually one that I think is in line with the vision of a more harmonious, equitable, uh, balanced future amongst multiple species. It's not just a coral animal from the animal kingdom and a algae that's a plant. But they also have fungi and viruses and bacteria. I mean, all of the major kingdoms of life, if you will, exist as part of what's called the coral holobiont. And that's what allows this tiny little anemone polyp to create some of the largest living structures on the planet, right? And then at the reef level, it is this incredible, um, dense, existence, you know, close living quarters for thousands, tens of thousands of species, all living together and millions of individuals. And it's in a, a, a system that is relatively closed. It is self-sustaining, right? They recycle everything. Every piece of the reef is used and occupied and, and serves a, a purpose for another animal. And Of course, there's life and death, right? There's predators and prey. There's, I mean, it is not a peaceful place necessarily where everybody's, you know, blowing kisses and waving and hugging, but it's a, a balanced system where all of that life, all of that diversity from your enormous reef sharks to your tiny little coral polyps can all exist and thrive. And yes, there's competition and and there's change, but it's a, a maintained system. And I think there's a lot that we can learn about how to live with our fellow species on the planet, not as separate, but truly part of. And so when we think about, you know, uh, coastal development, you know, we like to build these big concrete buffers and these big, you know, formidable defenses that have no flexibility, have no growth, have no permeability. We can learn a lot from the way corals build these enormous defensive structures and reefs that buffer other habitats, protect seagrass beds, protect mangroves, allow those systems to thrive too, allow our beaches to happen. But yet they grow, they change, they, they are constantly in flux. So I would say learning is, is a big piece. And climate change, I mean, we hear this again and again, but it can't be said enough, is solvable, right? We're not going to go back. Um, there's certain amounts of change that are already in motion and we can't stop. But we can still prevent the most um, drastic impacts, which would make it nearly impossible for corals to survive. The technology's there. The systems are there. It literally is just human will. But besides harming the corals less, can mm. we help them in an active way? Yeah, there, there are things that are being done to help. Um, so there are projects now where you can volunteer to outplant corals. Um, where corals are being grown in um, laboratory settings uh, to help them kind of reach a bigger size before they're then put out onto reefs. The stuff that we put out into the oceans is an issue. Um, so what you use to wash your body, what you use to clean your home, 
um, what your schools use to clean their facilities. That's all kind of on like the practical side. But again, for most people, corals remain out of sight, out of mind. How, how can we shift that? It can just be, you know, Ingo, through you, sharing with people what diving in the Solomon Islands was like because so few people will ever have the ability to experience that majesty and to speak about it with heart and with passion and with awe. Make that connection real for others who can't experience it. And so if you have had those experiences, talk about them, write about them, share photos, but speak from that personal place because I think that's where we as, as humans connect. It will raise the demand to see the corals for real. Mm -hmm. And actually, you don't have to scuba dive. You can, you see a lot no. already just by snorkeling and uh, they're quite yeah. accessible. So it means we need far more coral reefs, even than there have been like 50 or 100 years ago mm -hmm. to, to satisfy this need. Yeah. What can we do? How could we come, they're co-engineers. Co-engineers, yeah. If we could mobilize funds for, for reef restoration, like folks mobilize for war, right? Um, again, with rising sea level, many coastal countries you know, in the world, island nations especially, are looking at how they're going to protect their, their shorelines. So besides trying to protect their current reefs and rebuild the reefs as they are, as we're building these artificial structures, we now know how and what kinds of textures and materials and colors attract and help baby corals to thrive. And again, uh, Dr. Marhaver's work here has been fascinating. Out of Curacao, she's been running all these experiments looking at just that, looking at, okay, well, if there are baby corals floating around out there, how can we actually start building and creating habitats that are going to be more beneficial to them? There's new material science that's being developed looking at actual like eco-concrete kind of um, materials that, again, are more um, friendly and more hospitable for um, corals and also this what's known as calcareous algae. This is that kind of light pink, almost white. It looks almost like paste um, that kind of glues reefs together. And that's the material that actually baby corals like to to settle on. And so how can we incorporate some of those um, types of, of um, products that we're creating in labs and creating, you know, on land and then putting out into the sea that are going to help recruit and attract and allow more corals to survive? We've had breakthrough there. We've, we, we've created some of these innovations. What we need is the scaling. So what we need are the resources much of it financial, to replicate and spread this knowledge. And then you could have teams of divers going out to you know, repopulate and regenerate. And we need to support the coastal communities and economies, especially for small island developing states, whose reefs are still in good shape to survive these challenging times. So we need to think about how do we support new economies and new opportunity in these places so that people aren't forced to go dynamite their reefs to feed their families. You said that corals exist for more than 200 million years. Mm -hmm. What was their golden age? What were the best conditions ever for coral reefs? Oh, see, this is where I wish I, I had my, my advisor, Dr. Jeremy Jackson, was just brilliant in this space because um, he's a geologist as well as a paleontologist as well as a coral reef biologist. So he's got that longitudinal look. Um, so what I do know is that the hard reef systems have existed actually even longer. There was a whole era, I'm totally going to get the time wrong, but like pre-Cambrian, post-Cambrian time, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago with these rugose corals that are now extinct, that, that lived different than the, the hard corals we have now, which are known as scleric tinian corals. Those are what have arose about 200 million years ago. And really, I would say up until a few hundred years ago, 
they are in their most prime epic time. So over geological time, there's been shifts, right, where sometimes there were sort of hard coral-like animals, but then you also had sponges, you also had different algae and, and bryozoans. You'd have these sort of waxes and wanes of what kind of animal was the dominant reef builder, shellfish, or, you know, oysters and things in these different habitats. But since, you know, the Triassic, the scleractinian corals have been more and more and more dominating these tropical shallow reef environments, being the main reef builders, owning that, that space and, and diversifying. You know, in the Caribbean, we don't have that many different coral species. I think, you know, I'm going to get it wrong, but like maybe 60 and there's really like 15 to 20 that are the, the main reef builders, even less probably. In the Pacific, you've got hundreds of species. Um, especially in this area known as the Coral Triangle in the Indo-Pacific, where the Salmons are part of, it's it's an incredible diversity. And so that's an explosion that's happened, you know, and it's really only, you know, over the last couple hundred years that human influence on that system has have started to disrupt and degrade it. So I think that's that's part of why we can be try to be hopeful is because we actually have in the diversity of coral species that we we have on the planet today, there is so much um, opportunity to find and work to find species that can make it through. I think there may be fewer species um, for a while. Not every species is necessarily going to make it through this crunch, but I think enough can make it through with us acting now and us being proactive to to still have functional reefs of the future. Yeah. Um, coral reefs are sensitive to changing temperatures, but in general, is like a warmer climate or more like an ice age climate beneficial to them? <laughs> they like a combination of things. So they need that warm temperature, but they also need those warm waters to not be too hot. And they need them to occur over shallow enough environments that they can get enough sunlight. So we are making it too hot. It's definitely getting too hot, but it's also getting too hot with too much sea level rise too quickly. If this sea level rise was happening more slowly, corals would keep up. Corals have lived when the sea levels have been higher. And you can see that in places um, in, in the Caribbean. You can go inland and, you know, where there's been a road carved out of a mountainside, you'll see the corals, you know, the limestone reef that built that island. And you can identify the same species that are now out in the lagoon. It's right there. And that used to be reef underwater, right? And then the sea levels dropped. So it's the rate of change that's the issue. Um, even with the temperature, there are corals that can live in like 40 degrees C water. It's amazing. They've adapted to those higher temperature conditions in lagoons and shallow seas. Other coral species may also be able to do that, but they need the time, right? They need the ability to have generation after generation develops that, that physiological response. And we are just changing everything too fast. We could help them move through transplantation. Mm -hmm. We could help them move to a more moderate climate and Even when you think of like sea level rise, there's like areas could be flooded, shallow water. Uh-huh. You, you could. And folks are talking about that. They're talking about moving species and colonies that seem resistant or resilient to certain changes and, and transplanting them or again, gathering the sperm and eggs from some of those corals and then outplanting fertilized little larvae or baby corals, you know, into other regions. It's definitely possible. Again, there are folks who are trying to um, do genetic modification of corals to see if you could actually um, introduce heat tolerance into the genetic makeup of certain species. And again, corals are remarkably flexible in the fact that, you know, you can have a colony and you can break off a part of the colony and that colony can then grow and become its own individual, again, you know, separate, independent in entity. Um, they can heal wounds. They can, you know, all of these things, but it's the scale. It's, it's that issue of 
how do we do it at a scale that is going to have the impact and make sure that we're not introducing um, other factors? So part of what's difficult is they need that hard bottom. They need enough current flow, enough light, you know, the right salinity. So if you were to flood, you know, an area or as sea level rises, if, if there's new territory that's claimed, you know, what is in that area? You know, is the water clean? Is there going to be mixture with, um, I don't know if it's a beachfront, too much sand and it's unstable. Or again, if someone's built a concrete barrier, how do you get the corals over that, right? And have an exchange. But it's all possible. I think we have to hold a balance between the practice of humility and that we have made remarkable things as humans. We can engineer stuff, but we also get stuff wrong a lot, right? We also tend to not always think through every step and every consequence because the world is a complex place and it's ruled by nonlinearity and chaos. <laughs> it's hard to predict. I think that's all important. I think we need every tool to be explored. And we need to be very cautious in how we are introducing these tools into the environment and be precautionary, right? Make sure we're going through those checklists and to recognize that always, 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 it is better to use what nature provides and give nature the chance to heal than it is for us to try to replicate or recreate her. She does it better every time. We know this. But would it be possible for <laughs> desperate like coral lovers to bring corals to Europe, to the Mediterranean, to the Baltic mm -hmm, Sea even? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's a old quarry in, I think it's in Utah, you know, in the middle of the desert in the U.S., that has been filled with water and they've made it salt water and they've actually put like sharks in it in the middle of Utah and they swim around in there and they live there and people can go and dive. I don't know what I feel about that. Now, are the sharks like reproducing and thriving and they're like, how are, you know, are there always having to be inputs? Is it actually like a self-sustaining system? I don't know. What would it do to the other species in the Baltic and in the Mediterranean to introduce corals? Um, there are reefs, there are rocky reefs in the Mediterranean. There are some corals that are there. They have a different habitat. So are we swapping one for another? Um, what are we gaining? What are we losing? And who gets to decide? And that's, I think, where we need to really be thinking about um, how we make those decisions and who's a part of that. You know, there's a lot that we can be learning from cultures that have longer deeper histories with these reef systems. There are indigenous cultures that have lived with their reefs for thousands of years. What would they say? Those are the voices I think that need to be at the table and where I know that I can learn and need to be learning and listening um, before we, we can do, do some of these experiments. But is it possible? Yes. Is it important that we continue to look into all these tools? Are we, I think so. I mean, I think we are at that point where things are really that bad. But we also want to be careful that we're not going to make a problem worse. We, we have a terrible track record of that. Of course. And then it's an amazing image. You have these like flooded um, cities, <laughs> these like centers of human hubris, And yeah. uh, they become overgrown by, by coral reefs, kind of as a much more superior mm -hmm. form of complexity. Mm -hmm. I have two images that sort of come to mind. One are these, you know, where you see these oil platforms, right? Or warships, planes that have crashed. These weapons and tools of, of truly like earth destruction, right? War and fossil fuel extraction, where corals have just regrown, right? They've become these artificial reef environments that are sort of recolonized. And you can almost fast forward to a future where, you know, Miami is underwater and the corals and, you know, certainly first the mobile species, right? You're going to have your sharks and your fish swimming through and there's structure there, there's habitat there, there's complexity that does attract life. 
Um, and then the you know sponges and algae and coral, like maybe they all do eventually get there um, and reclaim that space and sort of um, do bring into question this idea of like, what is the more sophisticated city environment? What does it mean to have this thriving urban center of millions of individual residents um, from all, all different backgrounds and diversity, right? So absolutely, I think this is all possible. But the question is, again, what happens with the fact that, you know, some of the stuff in our cities and our environments are so toxic? That part, I and, and you know, this issue of plastic pollutions and, and the choking out of marine life, there, there is so much that um, life in the ocean will always go on. It's a question of what it looks like and what kind of life. Do we have more slime and algae and jellyfish or do we have coral reefs and parrotfish and sharks i think that's the question that i continue to wrestle with but um certainly marine life does like to take back what we build in the ocean it's really hard to keep that stuff clean this was the first episode of ocean wants featuring mara j hart Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertunk.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.